All right, welcome back to a slightly overdue episode of the Strategy Inside Everything. We have been working hard uh, to get this one synced up. Uh, our guest today is coming from halfway around the world, or he's where he's supposed to be, and I'm calling him from halfway around the world. I'm not sure which is the right way, uh, but he is the head of strategy at UM, and he's got a fantastic book out, which we're going to talk about in a bit. Uh, welcome, Ian Pritchard. Hi, Adam. Thanks for thanks for having me. Dude, thank you for your patience as we were trying to get this thing scheduled. There was a lot of back and forth, uh, so I really appreciate you hanging in there while we while we both kind of work through tough calendars. That's okay. That's okay. Life gets in the way. That's the you know. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Um, I wanted to before we dive into our topic. I wanted to let you tell the audience a little bit about your career because it's a pretty amazing career. Your experience is is. Uh, I'm jealous of it. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit of your time in, in London and now what you're doing uh, at UM. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, my, my sort of, you know, humorous uh, anecdote around this is, um, <clears throat> you know, when you, when, you get to, when you get to my age, then you start to get wheeled out to students and, and people like that to, to sort of, you know, give career advice. Uh, one of the things I, I sort of say is have a look at what I did and don't do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I guess just my, my sort of uh, uh, background, so I went to, um, uh, I went to art school, uh, and so I was a painter. Uh, and then when I left art school, um, I sort of tried to, to do that for a little while, but then kind of got caught up in, in music. Um, so this was in the, the late 80s when um, sort of Acid House or, you know, it wasn't called that then, but the thing that became that, uh, you know, started to sort of break into uh, culture. So in my final year at art school, um, we'd, we'd gone to see a big uh, Andy Warhol retrospective in London. So this was from Scotland. Um, and and that weekend, by accident, sort of blundered in to um, to some of these sort of uh, this emerging sort of uh, you know club scene or warehouse scene that was that was starting to happen, and that really uh, sort of captivated um, my interest and, and a couple of other people, you know. So really, we went back up the road and then decided we were gonna we were gonna run uh, sort of illegal warehouse parties and, and things. Uh, did that for a few years. Um, it led to record labels uh, actually making making records and music, and I sort of DJed, you know, around Europe <clears throat> till about 1995, 96. Um, and then I thought, you know, maybe it's about time I got a proper job. You know, I think I was. Why? Never... <laughs> 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 yeah. I didn't that... even know about this part, and I'm now uh, I'm even more jealous. Well, I guess I mean a lot of my contemporaries uh, were. Uh, at the time were people like, I don't know if anyone's heard of these people, but, you know, th this was, uh, you know, even people like Sasha, John Digweed, Justin Robertson, and all of these, oh, yeah. Paul Oakenfold, uh, you know, so they were they were just all, you know, uh, just sort of ex-football hooligans or whatever, you know, uh, guys like me. Um, but, you know, through, a, you know, a combination of obviously talent and luck, um, they kind of made it big and... Uh, you know, I got to the point where I thought, actually, yeah, it's probably not going to happen, you know, beyond the level I was at. So, you know, I thought um, maybe need to actually think about a proper job, you know. So, um, but during the process of, of, of doing the music, 
we'd, uh, we'd started some record labels. And of course, these, this is in the old days when they were big 12-inch black plastic things. I um, vaguely remember this. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you oh, know, you, you, had to, you had to design uh, labels and you had to design sleeves and, and posters and things. So, you know, because I was the, because I'd been the arty one. Uh, it was like, right, well, you can do that. So I had to figure out how to use a, you know, one, a sort of rudimentary Apple computer uh, and, and just sort of really blundered into sort of designing things there. So I became a graphic designer initially working for, you know, things like newspapers, you know, like just making up the little, you know, 10 by 2 ads for the newspaper uh, locally. And then towards the end of the 90s, um when just this was before broadband internet penetration you know people had the idea that the way to get the internet into people's homes was through the television and so so i went to london thinking interactive television is going to be the next uh, next big thing went to london to work for sky tv oh wow uh, uh, doing that or b sky b as it's uh, as it's known um and then, of course, then I was right in the middle of the first wave, really, of sort of the kind of digital agencies. So there were people like Dare and Polk in, in London that were sort of blazing that trail. So I joined um, a, a small agency called Weapon 7, now a huge agency. There was only about five of us at the time. We worked in a little corridor of FCB's office in uh, Newman Street. Um and, and really sort of pioneered a lot of, you know, there was a lot, a lot of optimism uh, for what digital Yeah, all the potential, everything that yeah. could, everything that yeah. could possibly happen. Yeah. Uh, and so it was, you know, it was, and the agency, you know, won a lot of awards, things like BAFTAs as well, not just advertising awards you know, for some of the stuff we were doing, then got acquired by Omnicom uh, and became very, very big. Overnight, we went from like ten people to fifty people, um, and that it got for me it got a little bit sort of uh, too big. Uh, and I think some of my paths that I'd wanted to pursue then became more difficult, obviously, because there was more people in there. Um, so I left Weapon Seven, did a couple of other things, and then around uh, so it was two thousand and ten. I got I got a call. Uh, saying, there's, uh, have you ever thought of working in Australia? And I was like, well, no, but I'm thinking about it now. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because, you know, I used to, uh, you know, I lived outside of London in, in Hampshire, you know, so I'd get up at half past five in the morning and go and sit on a train for an hour and a half to get into Waterloo and then sit on the sort of disease-ridden tube uh, to get up to West London, you know. And, and so I had, you make it sound so glamorous. <laughs> oh, it was all glamour. It was all glamour, yeah. No, and, but I just, you know, so in my head I thought, ah, sunshine, you know, beaches and everything. Yeah, that's that's going to be good. So I thought, oh, well, we'll come How out here. You? I know, the idea of a beach always sounds so great until you yeah. get there and you work 16 yeah. hours a week. How did right. you get make the move to strategy from from design you were probably doing a lot of strategy at weapon seven well no i was um that was where i kind of got interested so i mean the one of the partners there mark brown was was a was a sort of very well regarded strategy sort of guy in london so i kind of picked his brains quite a lot and listened to him and because uh, i'd been a creative you know i'd been a designer and then had gone through and been creative director um 
but I'd, in my mind, I thought, actually, I'm kind of not a great creative director. I'm kind of probably average at best. But, you know, I had this sense that I was going to be great at something. Uh, it just wasn't that. Um, and, I, and I think with in the, in, you know, in those early days of sort of interactive media, I think, you know, we were very concerned with, you know, why is someone going to click this or why is someone going to want to, you know, participate in, in this thing? So that got me interested in in more of the sort of uh, human sort of psychology, I think, of things. And then that just sort of naturally leads you into into sort of strategy. So it was it was never a conscious, I want to be a, a, a planner. It's just, you know, gradually over time, I just sort of, you know, moved over uh, you know, to the other side, uh, if you like, and then you know, you know, I had the sense I was great at something, and maybe that's maybe still slightly delusional, but I'm a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit better at this than I was at being. You a, had more. Yeah. It, maybe it's just confidence more than anything. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think when we, if, we, if we start, if we get to talk about the book uh, in a minute, confidence, you know, is a, you know, the, uh, you know, that's a sort of key component of the argument that I'm making uh, uh, in that about the nature of confidence and uh, and how that's uh, you know possibly been detrimental to the um, you know to the state of the industry uh, today but um, yeah yeah but, well let's know. talk about it so your your book is called where did it all go wrong uh, adventures at the Dunning Kruger peak of advertising uh, if people don't know what Dunning Kruger is they can go do their uh, do a little bit of Google and read yeah. the studies it's about people assuming uh, that they are good at their job, uh, and it's almost like the more incompetent they are, the more they believe they are good at the job. If I'm oversimplifying, uh, yeah. no, that, that, that's about from it. Dunning Kruger. Yeah, it's it's uh, you know, um, uh, what, how does it go? Uh, uh, ignorance uh, begets confidence far more than uh, than competence does, or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's the the research that that. Uh, came out of that the dunning kruger research is is mind-boggling yeah no, it, 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 and it's kind of hilarious as well i think <clears throat> you know that was one of the things that sort of drew me you know probably sort of 10 years ago i started first really started getting interested it's just uh, it's just the kind of the funniness of of, of so much of uh, you know of what psychology research has kind of uncovered you know about about our motivations and and, and why we do things um so you know, I, I guess if anyone's listening to this thinking, mm, I'm not sure if I want to get into that science, you know, it's like, but it's a good laugh as well, you know. Which is, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of it is when you really read it, you can kind of tell when there's a joke being played inside really dry writing exactly, that they yeah. they get that it's funny. And I've heard, um, I think it was Freakonomics did, a, did an episode uh, with some of the people involved in that Dunning-Kruger research specifically. And, and oh, those okay. guys get the joke. Okay. I mean, they totally get the joke about yeah. what they discovered and why it's funny yeah yeah i mean even one of my favorite writers uh, and, and and is stephen pinker is obviously one of the most famous uh so you know psychologists or he's, he's a linguist i think originally but he write, writes these great long books that are full of data and analysis and you know but also full of jokes as well you know which is uh you know it kind of helps you along, you know, when you're trying to read very sort of dense things, but you, you know, but there's a lot of humor injected into there as well. So. Yeah, levity levity goes a long way in breaking up um, really complex yeah. thinking or really dry subjects. Yeah. And I know Pinker 
um, from you, actually. I know that Pinker writes a lot yeah. about uh, evolutionary psychology and, yeah. and uh, I mean, the, how it the, translates. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, the Freakonomics guys are almost like a comedy double act in, in a way because they, the, there's the kind of, I can't remember which one's which, but one is very much the straight man, you know, and the other one is the kind of, uh, um, you know, the sort of funny guy. You know, so. Yeah, and I think by comedy standards, they're both probably the straight man, but Dubner certainly plays the uh, yeah. the jokester yeah. out of those two, yeah. out of those two guys. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, today's topic, which is actually. Um, super interesting, uh, applied evolutionary psychology. So you mentioned Steven Pinker. Um, he's he's kind of helping bring evolutionary psychology into mainstream culture, although it's, you know, uh, it's being studied and there are psychologists and others writing the scholarly work on it. Yeah. Um, but as you and I have both done in our books, trying to make it relevant to people in marketing and relevant living in 2018, um, talk to me a little bit about what captured you as you as you started thinking about it. Yeah, I think um, I mean my sort of road in was um, probably about this is probably about ten years ago. Whenever it was that, um, so the, there were there were those the initial there was like Dan and Chip Heath and Dan Ariely and and um, uh, a couple of others, but there were these sort of what you would call pop psychology. Kind of books that, that came out predictably irrational, I think, was the first sort of really big one. Uh, and I think it's, for a lot, it's of, on my desk right now. <laughs> but I think for a lot of people uh, in advertising, uh, you know, that was that was a kind of moment. You know, when all of a sudden a, a lot of that stuff became very sort of accessible, and then people like Rory Sutherland sort of picked up on that and really popularized it. Um, and so. And Rory sort of, I think he said something uh, about this. He said that the the great thing about behavioral economics was was it gave us a kind of language to talk uh, to marketing directors or, or CEOs, and it, and it basically had the word economics in the in the title, which kind of legitimized it. So instead of you know what stuff that we intuitively knew, we now had a sort of framework. Uh, a more scientific framework and able to, to talk to it and it gave it more more sort of credibility yeah and so that that really introduced a lot of that stuff uh into advertising and for you know for a lot of people that's that's sort of enough you sort of leave it there and there's plenty to explore and then there was thinking fast and slow came came along um you know and everyone had this big sort of language now that we could talk about biases and, and all that kind of stuff and 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 that was great but I, and I sort of enjoyed all that and I used a lot of that stuff, but then you, you kind of get to a point where you, you think, okay, you know, you can take something like, well, loss aversion, right, as a sort of, uh, you know, that's a tool that you can use, say, well, you know, we feel loss is worse than uh, equivalent gains, so how can I leverage that, uh, you know, in some sort of communication? Uh, and, and that's fine, but then you think, well, well why would that be the case? You know what? You know why would we feel that way? Or confirmation bias, you know, which is oh, you know, God. which is you know tendency to to sort of seek out corroboratory kind of evidence to back up a, a point of view that you already hold. Why do we do that? Because it seems like uh, 
you know, these are foibles or cognitive traps that can trip us up. But why do they exist? They must have served some purpose at, at one time. Um, and so that's when uh, looking more for what are the sort of fundamental motives uh, uh, behind that. And that's when you get into uh, sort of evolutionary theory, because then, well, you have to trace that back to the time, you know, when our minds really sort of evolved, you know, and, and that wasn't, yeah, because that wasn't in the modern world. It was, it was you know, 100,000 years ago. Um, because you can still link things like, you know, choosing a bank. I can still choose that to a decision, to a, a mutation or a decision-making process formed during some part in human development where yeah. we wanted safety or security for our our items or for our family. Exactly. Some of those things still have to fire when I'm looking at three different bank websites and going, well, which one is the one for me to trust? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a little trend uh, in Australia for the moment where, you know, it's a smaller market. And so you've got four big banks that really are competing for the bulk of, uh, for the bulk of the sort of customers. And, uh, and it is, it is funny when you look at the way that they communicate and, the, and, you, and you think that all four of them have just got it so wrong because, you know, they don't understand why people choose a bank. And it's exactly that, you know, as a, as a, a goal, you know, most human behavior is goal directed. Right. And what you want from a bank is, well, you want the generic category benefits, right? So you want to have a card and you want to have an account and you don't want to pay fees, but you want to really know that your money uh, is safe, right? And you can, yeah, you know, yeah. You don't, you don't really care whether, you know, what p particular social issues or whatever that they, <laughs> you know, uh, you know th they come out with sort of grandiose statements about how, you know, they're not really about money. They're more about making the world a better place. And it's like, well, I don't really, you know, it's other people's job. I kind of want you to be about money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but, and you can get a bit cynical about that. Uh, and you can also think, I mean, it actually puts uh, uh, advertising into perspective because you think, well, actually, despite the fact that, that all of these big companies are spending huge amounts of money you know, communicating stuff that is completely irrelevant uh, to, to the consumer, you think actually their, you know, their business is surviving and growing in spite of their advertising, not really because of it. Uh, well, let's think about it because with a bank, they're all going to that mission-driven uh, messaging and they're, you're right, they're not talking about the, the category basics. Um, do you think we as consumers i understand what a bank is i assume it's table stakes that they all have a big vault or that they all have security and there's no actual paper money i'm sure but yeah, <laughs> yeah. they all have the appropriate amount of security and so now i need a, a next uh, higher order benefit or a lower order benefit that's more like oh they're in the community doing things that that can't be bad or yeah. you know whatever the next thing is or or maybe banks are just a bad example for uh this for evolutionary psychology. Yeah. Well, well um, actually, because in, in my book, there's a little chapter in the book, which is, uh, you know, um, uh, around the, the sort of premise of, uh, well, asking the question of, can brands be altruistic, you know, um, you know, because all of this 
this kind of purpose driven sort of fashion at the moment is is around sort of altruism but what i sort of argue is that you know fundamentally what that's communicating is not so much about the altruism it's more of a signaling device which you know telling consumers that you know we're such a big successful uh, and and safe uh, company that we can afford to to waste uh, money on altruistic acts so it's just really it's it's a, it's just another status signaling uh, device so there's nothing it's just saying we have we have surplus to reinvest in the community exactly. or yeah. Yeah. you know i think about I, I, here in the u.s uh budweiser was was hurting for a long time and they did a um there was a natural natural disaster here there was a flood in the um houston area or actually a lot of the southeast and they shipped they shut down the plant the but one of the budweiser plants and they shipped a certain amount of uh, bottles of water they stopped brewing beer they stopped bottling beer and they bottled a bunch of anheuser-busch water and they shipped it there to to the people that were affected and it was something like i'm gonna say it was half a million dollars worth of water which is generous i mean that's great and they did it in 24 hours or something like that really fast turn and then they their super bowl ad was like a mini 30 second or 60 second documentary showing the plant manager getting the call and waking up at 3am and going and doing that. Um, and I thought, well, you just spent three and a half million dollars, which is actually more than you spent on the water. You could have given three and a half million dollars in water, you know, that if you were really altruistic. So exactly. I line up with you. It's self-serving to a certain extent, but it's the old thing, you know, if, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing in public. Yeah. (laughs) that's right that's right we might as well we might as well make an ad about it since we did it and get the credit for it jesus but that's the kind of thing that's you know just coming back to uh you know uh, the sort of evolutionary theory you know i mean that's why it's such an elegant theory because you can look at any kind of phenomenon like that you can and then sort of you know you keep asking why until you get back to that the the sort of ultimate motivation for that behavior you know which is you know in a sense if you're going to look at what Budweiser did there um, it's kind of akin to a sort of mate attraction type strategy that you might see in nature you know so a conspicuous display of resources uh, in order to attract uh, you know either mates or you know uh, um, or just friends or you know people who you might want to form alliances uh, with you know so um, you know I get you know I mean that's that's the interesting thing about about the theory because it's so it's so simple that you can look at just about any phenomena and and, and through that lens and find a uh, find an explanation for it there's a guy called Matt Ridley who's an economist, I think, but a sort of Darwinian economist. He's written a book called The Evolution of Everything. Uh, And it's like 12 chapters uh, looking at technology, politics, you know, entertainment, and explaining all of these things through through that lens. I mean, that's a great sort of little book to have in your desk drawer because you can just, you know, any sort of challenge that lands on your desk, you can whip that out and categorize it. And then, aha, now, you know, uh, you know, the, it ties it. It ties it back to like a core seed of of human evolution. Exactly. Yeah. Because I mean, one of the big problems. I, I don't know about you. <clears throat> I am. Um, 
I, I have this kind of joke that, you know, these rubber stamps that you can get made, you know, that you would stamp it on invoices and it says paid or, or whatever. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah. sure. So I, I, I wanted to get one made uh, that said not an insight. Uh, and that would save me time, you know, when I, I just go, <laughs> not an insight, not an insight. Uh, I used to work with a creative director who had one that said, been done, and I used to stamp it on your work. Uh, very good. Oh, well, there you go. It was pretty genius. Yeah, nothing original. Um, well, you know, you you actually, that's a great point because uh, what you said about status symbols, the idea of, you know, people choosing Adidas or Nike to kind of find their tribe and what we're seeing, I don't, I don't know what politics are like in Australia, but here in the U S and certainly in, in parts of Europe, we're seeing it as well, that this, this tribalism and the, the kind of the uh, filter bubble that people are putting themselves in to try to line up with people that are like-minded and similar. And that comes down even on the brand terms. If you're an Under Armour person or a Nike person or an Adidas person yeah. or a, uh, you know, Kappa person, like whatever brand you choose, it kind of, it, it it lines you up with the values of those other yeah. people. I mean, there's all kinds of, um, you know, for instance, uh, you know, just thinking about sort of sporting goods. I, I tend to be an Adidas person now, but the reason for that is uh, I like, I mean, my big sport is football, soccer. Right? So uh, my team, Aberdeen, they were really, uh, we, our heyday was in the mid 80s uh, and we won a big European uh, uh, cup final uh, back then, but the but the kit that they wore was an Adidas kit. You know, so anyone that's an Aberdeen supporter is very loyal to Adidas, uh, but it's nothing to do with Adidas. It's to do with the fact that when our tribe were successful, that was uh, that was the emblem, you know, uh, of the tribe. So if you go to an Aberdeen you know football match now, everyone in the crowd is wearing Adidas sneakers. You know. <laughs> Are they still are they still represented by yeah. Uh, Adidas? Uh, yeah, yeah. So the, just for life, that's, that's it. it. It's locked in yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, that's it. But I think you know the, here in the U.S. the teams switch too much to to get like a loyalty out okay. of it. The, the MLB and NFL switch switch providers every three or four years. Okay, yeah. But you probably you know you probably actually if you went into um, if you went into most people's closet and pulled out their branded sportswear you would probably find that there's a, a, quite a mixture you know people are quite loyal to the category um but um you know we'll we'll have a number of different different brands in there probably i mean this comes back to the sort of byron sharp type stuff you know of uh you know that brands in a category will share their customers uh, with other brands in uh, you know, corresponding with the size of brand, you know. So I mean, Adidas and Nike are of a similar size, uh, so people will, uh, you know, will will buy the products of both, you know. And then Reebok or something is slightly smaller, so they'll have fewer of those things. Um, you know, this, you know, I've kind of wondered about that. I thought, I wonder, can you tie that back to some sort of Darwinian? Uh, principle, you know, and, if you, and so this is maybe a little bit spurious, but but I had this kind of thought that back in uh, so back in the savanna, you know, when we were hunters and gatherers, you know, if you were gathering berries or fruit or you know plants, then it makes sense to not go to the same place every day, right? Right. It's availability. Yeah. It's it's what's available when you when on the days when you go out gathering. Yeah. Well, maybe there was only Reebok. Maybe there was only berries. That's it. But you want to spread 
uh, where you sort of collect from. Because if you, if everyone went to the same place and picked those berries, then very soon there would be no berries in that place. You know, so you have to. It's a bit like why farmers leave a field, uh, you know, uh, for a year without planting anything in it. You know, to to allow that the the soil to sort of regenerate with nutrients or whatever. You know? So I don't know how spurious that is, but you know. <laughs> You know, you, you know, possibly it's a loose, it's a loose yeah, connection. We're not scientists, okay. yeah, but we might, you know, because people yeah, don't more. go to the same supermarket every time. You know, you you you, know, you, you spread it around. You know? And part of it is where you are on your path. You know, coming home from this time, I'm coming home from work. Next time, I'm coming home from dance class with my kids. Exactly. So I stop at a different place to get groceries. Yeah. Um, so availability is a big. Um, part of evolutionary psychology i think is is what's convenient and convenience comes from uh safety you know if i if i venture too far from my cave or from our camp i'm putting myself at risk of a bigger animal than me or another tribe seeing me how can i stay close to home and make it simple for myself yeah all that all that still holds i think Um, yeah yeah, I think it all does yeah. tie, and it's it's interesting as you keep reading deeper and deeper. Um, it really, it, you always see Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and you go, I don't know. It seems like technology has moved us past that, but ultimately, it can all be tied back to those main uh, categories. Yeah, I think the Maslow thing is interesting. Uh, some people recently have kind of debunked that. Uh, a little bit, really like looking at it through a sort of, you know, because I think at the top of the Maslow pyramid is the idea of self-actualization. Um, whereas from a from a sort of more evolutionary standpoint, I mean, we know that the, you know, ultimate, I mean, there's two ultimate drivers of behavior, which is survival and reproduction. Uh, so mm. from a from an evolutionary standpoint, they put you know parenting at the top of the uh, at the top of the pyramid because obviously that is fundamental to getting your genes. Well, I mean you've you've produced offspring, so your genes are in the next generation. But then you 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 know you want to protect them for long enough that then they can reproduce, and then then your job is done. You know because you've uh, you know you've successfully got two generations uh, down the line uh, and, and so you know you've you've become one generation closer to a more exactly <laughs> as as Dawkins would be, would but tell us right I love the because in the selfish gene you know this is the sort of most harrowing but kind of insightful kind of and it's quite near the beginning when he says you know we're we are robot vehicles blindly programmed uh, by our genes to you know to get them into the next generation or something. But I like the idea of robot vehicles, you know. Um, <laughs> you just want to be like Voltron. <laughs> Ultimately, that's what yeah. you like about it. I'm kind of, I mean, the other thing, because I'm interested in uh, in sort of um, where artificial intelligences are, are, you know, potentially going. I think that's the next sort of really interesting frontier um, from the point of view. I mean, particularly from an advertising point of view for, uh, you know, one of the, things we've been hindered by you know for a long time almost as long as there's been advertising is the kind of pretty flawed market research uh, methodologies that we have to deal with and i'm sure you've sat through all kinds of uh, you know absolutely delusional brand tracking 
you know surveys and and uh, you know we have particular uh, tools that get used in Australia for you know demographic profiling and, and all that kind of stuff which are just none of them you know which oh, is just yeah. complete nonsense um, no 10 10 percent of what you're dealing with yeah, is used. exactly but you know but there's a sense that if we could uh, you know and and, and and most of that is because of the the basically the human intervention and because you know we're fundamentally stupid uh it's it's not surprising that it comes out as rubbish you know so that's you know i think that that's an interesting area where uh, artificial intelligences could be successfully uh, applied. Um, How do you think it'll apply? Do you have any do you have any thoughts on it, or you just think that level of calculation will will be powerful? Well, just on a very very basic level, just the ability to cope with far bigger data sets than than the human mind can comprehend. I mean, we're not very good with numbers anyway, you know, because we didn't really evolve to. Uh, to do mathematics, you know. So I mean, obviously, some people uh, very skilled at that, but but most of us can be fooled by statistics very very easily. Um, and so, if we can create machines that are not that are not fooled, then we might get a better representation, you know, of uh, you know, just even for sizing an audience for for something, you know, based on on uh, rather than anecdotal. Uh, self-report data, which you know, it's no big surprise. Everyone knows that that's deeply flawed. Um, there's a thing that Philip Graves, the consumer psychologist, he adapted a sort of quote from Edgar Allan Poe, where he says, "You know, trust nothing consumers say. Trust about half of what you see them do, but trust nearly everything that the sales data tells you they have done." That's it. Where they exactly. put their money. So you know, that's the. You know, I think we're a long way off an artificial general intelligence. That's the that's the the Robocop kind of fear that people have. Um, but I think you know I'm not an expert in this uh, by any stretch. But from what I've read, the people who are experts seem to think that anything of that nature is a long, long way off. Um, but but what we can create is. Um, if you think uh, so, the other thing about sort of if you think how, how the human mind is sort of constructed, I mean, it's not one general purpose system; it's a number of modules that all sort of came about and evolved at different times in our history, and they all stuck together. And the kind of these modules are good for doing one or two things. Uh, right. Each one of them does something and passes the next part to the next part. Exactly. Of the and quite often they don't collaborate very well. I mean, they compete with each other. You know, for for the sort of control of the organism. Um, well, isn't that part of confirmation bias, where an idea gets lodged in one part of the brain and the other parts just are left out of the, <laughs> the decision right, at right. that part, where it's like, no, no, I've already decided, guys, That's it. stop it's it. It's whichever module's in control uh, at any particular time. Uh, so, I mean, we could get really philosophical, you know, and, and think about, well, you know, what do we mean by self? Um, and there's there's an argument. I can't remember who put this forward first, but um, but there's an argument that that the uh, there's one particular sort of module or process that we think of of the self, uh, but really what it is is that that's the PR department of, of the mind, right? Which is it, which is concerned with reputation and and things like that, and and it's often working with with either incomplete information 
so it's a bit like uh, I think the analogy is it's uh, if you think of uh, the rest of the mind as the Oval Office, uh, this component is the press office. So it's often trying to sort of communicate to the to the the rest of the the organism and to the outside world what it thinks the 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 mind is trying to do, um, but it doesn't really have all the information. Um, right, but it doesn't know yeah. for sure. <laughs> so Robert. But that's the same. That's the same problem as focus groups, essentially, where I try to get from you or ten of you, which is even worse. Hey, you know, what do you think? What what beverage do you want when you're hot? Well, I don't know. I kind of want this one, but nobody can really explain what. That's it. It's yeah. not really intent, that's it. But you can't understand. Uh, it's the mind's PR department, just based on very little information, throwing out a plausible explanation that might just you know keeps the press pack at bay. Uh, you know. Uh, for a little while you know i mean focus groups are one of the worst things you know because i mean people know, as soon as they're gathered into that sort of brightly lit room uh you know with the sort of uh slightly sort of curled up at the edge sandwiches uh, they know they're going to be they're going to be questioned about it. so they're already primed to have an opinion on something before they even know what they're going to be asked about yeah. right your guard yeah. is up yeah and then kind of tribal behavior kicks in and people try to find their place. In exactly. The, in the group. And that comes back to human nature as well. You know, constantly battling for status. You know, we do, we'll, we'll do that in any situation. Uh, we'll try, you know, try and find our place in that sort of hierarchy. Uh, and inevitably, you know, someone comes out on top and then influences the, the opinions of the rest of the people there. So. It's yeah. unfortunately we've done we've been doing more and more online panels and online um, communities instead of live groups yeah. um, for that reason to try to minimize the the alpha and to yeah. try to give people time to yeah. separate from it they can we do them over a period of days and um, it's I don't know when people are writing into a computer you get a little bit more honesty than you would when they have to stare across the table at three of their neighbors yeah. and, um, be accountable for like, well, actually I like to go do this yeah. terrible I mean, the, 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 that you guys just told the, me you the, don't like. You know, if, if it's at all possible to sort of disguise what it is you're actually researching, you know, if you can get them even to believe that one thing is being researched, but you're really, you know, uh, uh, by stealth, you're really trying to find out something else, then, then that can, that can sometimes be more, uh, more useful. Um, how, you know, it's yeah. weird. It's such a weird thing. Yeah. Well, it's a bit, it really is. It's a bit, you know, in the scientific sort of, you know, they call it, I mean, ideally you want it to be double blind, you know, so I mean, we're, right. we're the, even the people who are doing the research don't know what it is that they're researching. So in, in that way you can mitigate as much as you can. Um, but looking at actual, actual most of data them, okay. in the wild is the best indicator uh, of anything. But of course it's the harder stuff to get a hold of. Oh, almost always. Well, I want to, um, before I let you go, um, I know your workday is about to start. Um, I wanted to talk just a little bit more about the book. Uh, tell me just your biggest takeaway as you were, as you were kind of working on that or biggest thing that you've, I know when I released the book, some of the feedback I got, I was like, oh, I wasn't even trying to say that, but you, it's interesting that you took that away from it. Have you gotten any kind of shocking uh, feedback from the from the book or it, feedback that made you think about, Oh, okay. Now I can write a second one. Cause I hadn't, I hadn't heard uh, it yet. That's interesting because 
no. <laughs> so, so I don't know if the book is so sort of self-evident that you know. Um, I mean, how it came about. It's interesting because I'm writing now. I've kind of got the bug. I'm sure you're the same. So, because I've got, I'm writing two other ones at the, at the moment. So it took me about. You're writing two, two at, at the, the same, same time. time. Um, yeah, you're psychotic. Well, because this this first one. It's a bit like if you're in a. Uh, imagine if you're in a band, right? And then and so you play around the pubs and clubs for years, and then you maybe get a get support act on a big big band's tour, and then you get signed, and then you have to record your first album. You know, you've had five years of playing those songs, uh, and then you whack them all into the first album, and then you've got the problem of doing the second one, but you've only got a year uh, this time, so. The, the first book, uh, so, I mean, my one was, it was based on about three or four sort of articles that I'd written for work or for trade press. I mean, I, I, I've been writing stuff for 12 years, just really just churning it out and, you know, blogging and stuff. But there were four, three or four things that seemed to connect. And so I joined them together and then wrote around them uh, and sort of, you know, filled it out, and then and, and that was the book. But that was kind of the easy one in a way because the material was was basically there. Um, and so I thought, oh, it's going to be a struggle to do anything else. But then I had some stuff left over that never made it in, plus some new things. And then all of a sudden, I had half of the second book. Oh, that's fantastic! But that wasn't the second book that I wanted to write because <laughs> you know, I wanted. <laughs> so, so the one that I'd wanted to write. Was because this one is is I guess the closest thing, you know. If you had to categorize it, you would say it's more like a sort of philosophy, because there's there's no ten steps to do this or you know blah blah blah. It's just it's kind of musings on stuff, uh, and that that's the easiest stuff for me to write. Um, and so and so this sort of you know second book that was happening by default was another one of those. But then I looked at, I got a little bit jealous and I looked at um, uh, uh, what, uh, uh, Richard Shorten, who's a guy I think we both know. Oh, yeah, he'll be, he'll uh, be on London. soon too, yeah. Okay, so uh, I got his, you know, I always, because uh, I've got your book, it's sitting in my Kindle. I just haven't read it yet. Sorry. You son got, of a. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Sorry, sorry. That's all right. Uh, but I got shot. I got book as well, and I kind of, um, I kind of sort of scanned it really. Um, again, I think he'd sort of compiled it similar to the way I'd done mine because because I, I thought oh, I've read some of this stuff before in other columns that he'd written. But then I thought he's been very very smart because he's and he's going to sell far more books than me because he's made a practical book that 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 people can pick up and use right because uh, i think he's billed it as 25 uh, yeah behavioral, behavioral biases, biases. yeah oh, it's a, it's a very very interesting book yeah and so i thought that's you know that's how you write a book that's going to sell which is make it something people can use so i thought right well he's sort of done that around the sort of cognitive psychology behavioral economics and i thought uh, so i don't want to give the game away too much because i haven't you know, because I want to get this book out before someone else does it. But I thought, you know, um, I wanted to do one then, a practical, usable book using evolutionary social motives uh, as, as a base, right? And, and so uh, there are around six fundamental 
motives that drive behaviour. And I thought that's six chapters uh, and I'll write those with practical examples of how you can apply that. So that's going to be the third. Uh, the third book is going to be much more of a practical uh you know, application. I like it. You're things, like so. uh, you're like a Hollywood studio. You're thinking in trilogies. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. No, I'm just thinking, how can I make some money out of this? You know, because you know you're going to have to sell a few thousand books to to make some money. Yeah, so. when you figure that so, part out, would we, can we do another podcast and you yeah. can explain <laughs> explain to me how? Yeah, but the other knock on from doing the you know, so you can write these philosophy books and be a sort of cult and sort of you know and, and reach a few hundred uh, people and, and and maybe get the odd speaking gig. But but I noticed the other thing that makes me jealous of Shotton is now he's on he's about to embark on a book tour of the US, you know, and I'm thinking, right, that's uh, those other knock-on benefits. That, that's you know, that's what you want. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So well, there you go. Well, he'll be he'll be he'll be sitting there. If he listens to this, he'll be very pleased that he's causing this kind of existential angst. But uh, for um, both of us, yeah. For both of us. <laughs> well, I'm going to ping him after this. Hopefully, he'll be coming through uh, Phoenix, and I can I can visit with him when he's when he's in town. Okay. Then. Yeah. Well, Ian, this has been awesome. Give me, give me, um, how can people reach you if they want to learn more? They want to uh, ping you with questions. Yeah, well, I'm I'm pretty easily accessible online. So on, um, I guess mostly on. So obviously, I've got my my blog, which is just uh, ianpritchard.blogspot.com. It's and called I, Never and Get I Out will, of the Boat. And I will definitely link to it uh, in the in the show notes here. Yeah, or. Um, or on Twitter, so I'm Ian P, so E-A-O-N-P uh, on, on Twitter. Um, and so, yeah, happy to connect with people um, and, and chat there. Very good. Well, this has been this has been awesome. Thank you so much for making time. I know you got on uh, at 8 a.m. your time, so I appreciate you getting in early to uh, chat with me today. Uh, that's all right. I mean, and, you know, thank you very much for having me. Uh, and... Uh, you know, the thing is, I don't know about you, I tend to try and get into the office. So if I can get in about half past seven, it means I've got an hour and a half to do work. No or shit, something. before everybody starts interrupting you. I know. <laughs> before, before I have to start attending meetings. You know, so. <laughs> same, same, same. So yeah. for any young people listening, that's the key. Get in early. You can leave early if you get in early. That's right. Yeah. Well, in theory, yeah, never happens. Theoretically. Practice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> When I say leave early, I mean 10 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, you, or, you, or you sort of get home when you can, you know, uh, and then, you know, once sort of children have gone to bed, then you can work for another five hours. <laughs> oh, that's when you're really productive. Yeah, are you kidding me? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny, when I did, you know, talking about writing books and stuff, I don't know what your sort of process was, but most most of, the, of my stuff was written in that period between about half past six and half seven in the morning. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, and a uh, lot the, after hours when the kids went to sleep. Yeah, exactly. And the the guy, um, I, I sort of uh, there's the guy that draws the Dilbert cartoons, uh, which I can't remember what his name uh, is. Scott Adams. Scott, by all accounts, not a very nice man, but um, he, I, I sort of picked up that from him before he did Dilbert professionally. Uh, you know, he did something else, and all all of the early Dilbert stuff was drawn in that first hour. Uh, of the day uh, before it uh, before it became his job. So uh, yeah. So for any for the kids out oh, yeah. there, listening, the whole yeah, yeah. There's a whole school of thought from um, 
what's that book? The Artist's Way. Um, if you if you read or listen to uh, Brian Koppelman, who is a film writer, producer, director, uh, he does the show Billions and did a bunch of feature films. He speaks a lot about, he was in another career, but he wanted to be a writer and he would wake up at 6 a.m. and write for two hours every morning until he got enough stuff that he could go pitch a, a okay. script. Okay, I, d- I didn't know about uh, that. I'll check that out because... Uh, it's it's really interesting. Cool. So, all right, well, let me let you get back to work. Um, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Ian, uh, again, thank you so much for making time. I really appreciate it. Great oh, talking with Thanks, you. Thanks, Adam. Uh, all the best. And uh, yeah, I'll speak to you soon.